the holy gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you. Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. What is the relationship between your faith in God and who you are and what you do? What is the relationship between your faith in God and who you are and what you do? In 1982, I left college and went to graduate school in Canada to the first seminary in North America, listen, that was founded chiefly for the education of the laity to be its primary focus. Let's all be clear about what I'm talking about. A typical seminary is supposed to train pastors, like the two of us, to do parish ministry. But this seminary was founded for a doctor, a nurse, an Indian chief, a scientist, a teacher, a lawyer, a businessman, a businesswoman, whoever. And the typical Regent College student was there for a year And they were there for one reason only, and it was to answer this question. Because this question was not being answered satisfactory in their lives. They'd reached a crisis, and they were lawyers and doctors and scientists and Indian chiefs, and they were Christians, and they could see no real integration in their lives. I remember one student who was a lawyer getting up in January term and saying when he arrived at Regent College, the only thing that was Christian about his law practice was some, notice, some of the magazines in the waiting room in his office. And he later said by the time he left, it came down to how he treated every single client, how he interacted with them as a person, how he billed them, and the nature of the cases he began to take. This is the question that I'm asked after. And just to press it even further home so we're all together, This was the thing that bothered George Gallup about American Christians more than anything else. In all of his surveys, he's now gone from this world to the next, but you know about whom I'm speaking, the great sociologist of America, George Gallup, and the the famous Gallup poll, and he did lots of things, but he was a great student of faith and religion, and again and again, his polls would show two things. One, most Americans, 80 to 90 percent, believe in God, and two, it doesn't seem to make much of a difference in their lives. 
We revere the Bible, but we don't read it. We believe the Ten Commandments to be valid rules for living, but we can't name them. We believe in God, but this God is a totally affirming one, not a demanding one. He does not command our total allegiance. We have other gods before him, he said in the early 1990s. Sounds like it was said yesterday. Are we all clear on the question? What's the relationship between who we are and what our faith is and what we do? All right, now with that question in mind, if you'd be kind enough to turn to Romans 12 for just a moment, I want to look at this passage and I want to answer my own question in three ways, just as a preliminary beginning. Paul writes this passage to Christians, having spent 11 chapters expounding and elucidating the truth of the gospel, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, that God is holy, that the law calls us to be holy as God is holy, that we have fallen short, all have fallen short of the glory of God, and that God sent his son Jesus Christ to be sacrificed in our place so that Christ could make us righteous with a righteous God again, and Christ did what the law could never do. The law could only point out our need for God. It could never solve our, the problem of re-reconciling us with God. And he spent 11 chapters talking about the greatness of the gospel, which in the first chapter he calls the power of God. And now in chapter 12, finally, finally, he says, therefore, and whenever you see a therefore, how many times have you heard me say this? Ask what it's there for. It's there for a reason. Therefore, in the light of the gospel, in the light of the Christian view of history, in the light of Jesus Christ and all he's done for your life and your salvation, how then shall we live? And Paul's going to start answering that question. And look at your text. What does he say? First, it consists in a life of worshipful service. Look at the text. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to prevent your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. It involves your body, and I please want you to notice that word, living sacrifice. It involves your life. This is an appeal for a life of practical service. If you want to think about Romans 12:1 in a very simple way, as an Anglican, all you need to think about is this. When you come up to the altar rail, how do you come? You kneel and you stick out your hands. And what Paul is saying is the posture that you have in worship is the posture that you should have in your whole life. You exist for others. You exist for creation. You exist for the glory of God. And as you lay yourself down before me in worship on Sunday, so you lay your life down before me during the week for your family, for your co-workers, for the creation of the world which I made for the glory of God and which I want you to take care of in my name and for other people who are created in my image, and on and on I could go. Are we all together? A life of worshipful service. So it's not just Sunday morning worship. It's worship with your body and your soul and your strength in all that you do in your home, in your work. Everything about the Christian is to be seen as being permeated by a life of worshipful service. It's a great image service. One of my favorite stories about it comes from John Kenneth Galbraith, who may or may not be known to you. He was a, 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 a great political figure, an economist, a statesman, and so on and so forth, taught at Harvard. And in his autobiography, he tells a lovely story about the housekeeper of his family in Massachusetts. And he's had a particularly long and difficult day. And he says to his housekeeper, he says, look, I, I'm, I'm shot. 
I'm, I need to go take a nap, and I don't want to be disturbed. She says, okay, Mr. Galbraith, got it. So the phone rings. It's Lyndon Johnson. True story. It's in his book, his autobiography. The President of the United States on the phone for John Kenneth Galbraith. He says, this is Lyndon Johnson. I want to speak to Kenneth Galbraith. She says, I'm sorry, sir. He's taking a nap, and he told me I'm not to disturb him. And there's a pause, and he says, this is Lyndon Johnson. I want to talk to him. Wake him up. And she says very forcefully into the phone, she says, I'm sorry, Mr. President. I work for him, not for you. Click. Now, here's my favorite part of the story. Galbraith eventually woke up. He called Lyndon Johnson back. The first thing Lyndon Johnson did when he called him back is he effused all over the place about what a great housekeeper he had. And he said, I want her in the White House. Seriously, that's a true story. That's real service. I don't work for him. I work for you. That's Christian service. That's what it looks like. One of the interesting books that's been published in the last several decades is something called The Theology of Work Commentary. There's, this is a real book. I'm not making it up. It's a book about looking at the Bible from the perspective of work. And here's the, that commentary on this passage. This is fascinating stuff. Listen to how practical this is. We can offer a living sacrifice to God every waking moment of our lives. We do it when we forgive someone who trespasses against us in our workplace, or when we take the risk to help heal a dispute between people. We offer a living sacrifice when we forego the unsustainable use of the earth's resources in pursuit of our own comfort. We offer a living sacrifice when we take on less than satisfying work because supporting our family members matters more than finding the perfect job. We become a living sacrifice when we leave a rewarding position so our spouse can accept a, accept a dream job in another city. We become a living sacrifice when we, listen to this, as a boss, take the blame for a mistake that a subordinate makes in his or her work. Now we're talking integration. Now we're talking a close relationship between who Jesus Christ is and what our faith is and who we are and what we do. You're the boss, somebody muffs up, it's a costly error, and you eat the cost on their behalf. That's real Christian leadership in the workplace. This is what this passage is talking about. Are you all with me? So first, it involves your body, and it involves your life, and it is a call to a life of worshipful service. Second, it is a call to have a mind that thinks God's thoughts after him. Look at how practical this is. I started about talking about your body and your life, and now in verse 2, what am I going to talk about? I'm going to talk about what Paul tells me to talk about, which is your mind. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Oh my goodness! Christianity has to do, above all, with how you think. There is, in the technology industry, the Geigo principle, which I love to talk about, right? You all know this. doesn't matter how good the computer is. If you have a lousy program and you stick garbage into a computer, you get garbage out. G-I-G-O. Garbage in, garbage out. And part of the reality of the nature of humanness is we work like that computer principle. If you take garbage in in your thinking, garbage comes out. 
So there's a whole swath of the New Testament that's about what you think. In Philippians, Paul says, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is good, whatever is just, think on these things, he says. Think about beautiful music. Think about beautiful mountains. Think about glorious things. And then think about the God who made them and allow that to shape your thinking. J.B. Phillips has a wonderful translation of verse 2. He says, do not let the world squeeze you into its mold. The late, great Harry Blameers, an Anglican in the last century, wrote a whole book called The Christian Mind. He begins it this way. There is no longer a Christian mind. It is a commonplace that the mind of modern man has been secularized. For instance, it has been de deprived of any orientation towards the supernatural. Tragic as this fact is, it would not be so desperately tragic had the Christian mind held out against the secular drift. But unfortunately, the Christian mind has succumbed to the secular drift with a degree of weakness and nervelessness unmatched in Christian history. It is difficult to do justice in words to the complete loss of intellectual morale in the 20th century church. One cannot characterize it without having recourse to language which will sound hysterical and melodramatic. The whole book was written in 1963 to make the case that Christians weren't thinking Christianly about the world and their God and their place and their work and everything in it. And he was trying to offer a corrective. And it's more relevant now than when he wrote it in 1963. It's a fantastic book. I would love to talk about it all morning. I just want to make two quick points, but I want to press this home, this idea of thinking Christianly. My poor wife, in terms of all the TV and movies that we watch at nighttime to try to escape from the brutal reality of living just for a few hours, de deals with me ranting about this all the time. But the first thing I want to talk about is uh, when, when, when Blamier says the supernatural orientation, you have to realize how secularism works, brothers and sisters. Secularism is like smoke in a room, right? If you're in a room and somebody in the room, no matter where they are in the room, is smoking, you are inhaling secondhand smoke whether you want to or not. You are in a world which is driven by militant secularism, increasingly so at the beginning of the 21st century. And you must oppose it. And one of the simplest ways to illustrate it is to stick you in a movie or a television program and ask you to ask this question. Where is the reality of God in the program? And if you actually ask that question and think about it carefully for just a moment, what you realize is he's gone. No family saying grace at the dinner table or the breakfast table or the lunch table. No families going to worship. Nobody ever making a reference to a Christian concept at all. Nobody actually public portray, publicly portrayed as praying. Blue Blood's the notable exception, I will grant, for those of you who like that show. An actually decent portrayal of a Roman Catholic family, but it sticks out like a sore thumb. In other words, God is assumed to be absent, and you have to work to bring him to be present, or you will be hoodwinked. Second, to tie in directly with the rector's sermon last week about saying yes in a culture of no. There's so many dimensions to what we're going through right now which are full of secular ideas. But when Harry Blamers talks about a supernatural orientation, can I remind you that one of the three chief 
theological virtues, faith, hope, and love, is hope, which is confidence grounded in the character of God. And you are in a culture which is increasingly hopeless, nihilistic, dust in the wind. All we are is dust in the wind. Same old song, only for a moment, and then the moment's gone. That's so much of our culture. There's a new movement called Birth Strike, in case you didn't know. Maybe you didn't. Just to give you one very relevant cultural illustration, a whole generation of women who are going on birth strike. They will not bring a baby into this world because it's such a horrible place. We have never had a birth strike movement as a movement, so far as I'm aware, in American history. We have one now. Haley Stewart writing about birth strike as a Christian this past week says, I want to explain why, even though I sympathize with their fears, I think their form of protest is deeply flawed. Although they don't realize it, their, their movement reveals that our culture is reaching the depths of despair. As Christians, we are called to something more. Our response to this disaster must not give in to despair or fall into the utilitarian trap of weighing every choice on the scales of pleasure versus suffering. Instead, we must bear witness to the inherent goodness of, of, of creation, which transcends such rubrics. We believe in a hope-filled world because we believe in a hope-filled God because we have been given a hope-filled gospel. And the Israelites went following the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. God is out there in the future. The God who has you in his hand has being a Christian is to believe that faith in God is relevant not simply for today, but for tomorrow. Give us this day our daily bread is a statement about today that moves into tomorrow. It says, God will take care of me today, and if history doesn't end today, I'm going to say this prayer again tomorrow. It moves forward in hope. Our Father who art in heaven is the one who holds the world in his hand. Do you believe that? Do you live like that? You are in a culture where if you have hope, you stick out. And I want to encourage you to continue to do so. So first, it's about a life of sacrificial living service. Second, it's about your thinking and not being squeezed into the world's mold, especially with regard to its lack of a supernatural orientation. And then, talk about practical stuff, it's about you. What an amazing passage. Did you see what Paul's talking about? Well, you just read it in verse 3. It's about you. It's about how you think about yourself. Oh, there's a tricky subject. Oh, gosh. But the reality is, I love to say this to my friends. They, they make fun of me now, but it's, it's funny when I initially say it. Wherever you go, there you are. Have you noticed? It's one of the great things about life. It's also one of the really terrible things about life. You can't escape yourself. And we don't even understand ourselves and our own actions. And how you think about yourself is also part of living out a Christian life that's actually meaningful. And what Paul says is, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. Which means what? It means that we need to slay ourselves and talk about how horrible we are and think about how many times we've missed God's standards. No, 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 no. That's not the Christian doctrine of humility. The Christian doctrine of humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. You don't become a humble Christian 
by putting yourself down. You become a humble Christian by worshiping and more fully understanding the greatness of God. And in the light of the greatness of God and the greatness of his gospel and the greatness of his call to the world, you put yourself in your place. And you live a life of self-forgetfulness and self-criticism and self-questioning. Talk about swimming upstream culturally. Do you think of yourself that way? Do you actually put yourself in work and before you start something, boop, 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 off to the races, you actually ask yourself, why am I doing this? What am I actually going to get out of this? Where is my faith in God and how does it fit with this? If you start thinking like that, it changes everything. And Paul says, you've got to think about yourself as a person before God, no matter what he's called you to be and do, in a different way. And it has to be something that goes down. Someone has said about the life of Christ, a beautiful image, he said, the life of Jesus is like water. It always goes to the lowest place. Drip, drip, drip. And he says, if you actually look at every scene in the New Testament and you look at Jesus, he always ends up in the lowest place. He always ends up in the lowest place. It's so true. There's the disciples and there's the kid and I am among you as one who serves. He's constantly acting like that. Is that because he's putting himself down and he doesn't think he amounts to anything? No, it's because he's serving his father who's called him to be a servant. And he understands the call and he understands the greatness of his father. And he understands his place in the world. Not too lowly, but not too highly, exactly properly. Are you all with me? So it's about your work and your life of meaningful service. It's about how you think. And it's about your relationship with yourself, especially the dialogue that you have with yourself every single moment of the day, and especially how you think about yourself, and whether you can actually call into question your own motives and actions in a realistic way. Now I'm done, and I only want to say two things, and they're both incredibly good news. If you take this sermon seriously, if you take a call to a life of worshipful service and a call to a life that think God's thoughts after him and a call to a life where you think of yourself as you ought to think and not too much, there's no way you can live up to those standards. Absolutely no way. I can't even make it through a week living up to these standards. And the good news of the gospel is we're going to offer you communion anyway. Why? Because Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. It's a reminder of why you need communion. Good news. The same people who went through the last week not doing these things and are hearing today, the, in a fresh way, I hope, the need to do these things and who didn't do these things are being offered the grace and the love and the strength of God because of Jesus Christ's sacrifice and what he did as sinners to go into the next week and understand that we are frail and broken and messed up and weak and God loves us anyway. You with me? Second, it's good news because you can't do it and I can't do it, but the whole point of being a Pentecostal Christian is this is what the Holy Spirit is for. The good news is not simply you can't do it, but you can't do it yourself. But you can do it by the Holy Spirit, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says Zechariah in the Old Testament. The purpose of the Holy Spirit is to give us the power to live a life as a living sacrifice. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done, says Jesus. So I offer you the incredible call to a life of integration. It's all of who you are. It's all of what you work at. It's all of your relationships. 
and how you think and how you function within yourself. And I offer you a reminder that we all fall short of that and we're still loved and that the, the purpose of the Holy Spirit is to give us the power to live into that life. And brothers and sisters, that life, those lives, lives lived like that, change the world. Leo Rostin in Reader's Digest points to ponder March 1991. I cannot believe that the purpose of our life is to be happy. I think the purpose of life is to be useful, to be responsible, to be compassionate. It is above all to matter, to count, to stand for something, to have made a difference that you lived at all. Christians who live like this change the world. May God, through his Holy Spirit, give us the strength to be those kind of Christians. In Jesus' name, amen.